Welcome, dear listeners, to episode 37 of the Jacobs Podcast. This is part two of last week's episode, which is a longer discussion I had with Will Witheridge on The Enduring. We finished last episode talking about enduring concepts from literature to stage plays, and on this episode we talk about the political endurance of John Howard, how generalists triumph, and life advice from the creator of Dilbert, Scott Adams. We hope you enjoy this episode, and for any future ideas for podcasts, please get in touch with me at seanjacobs.com.au. I'd love to hear from you, and enjoy the episode. Just sort of changing gears or moving a little bit, but probably staying in the same kind of space, is um, you've just finished reading um, John Howard's Lazarus Rising, um, which is a, a massive book, um, and grief. How many pages is it, Will? Uh, it's about 800. Yeah, solid, but... They're, they're fairly short chapters, so... Um... Yeah, it keeps, <laughs> certainly keeps one engaged, and I think... Um, you know, Howard is one of those, you know, I've talked about this before, um, John Howard, Australia's second longest serving prime minister, was very big on this idea of principles. Um, and he obviously described himself as a social conservative, but an economic liberal. And, um, you know, so someone obviously had found a lot of time for principles, um, but then also was a really big reformer. Um, so certainly someone who wasn't sort of driving forward and looking through the rearview mirror in certainly in a policy sense or in terms of his time in um, as Prime Minister of Australia. But um, what actually, how did you um, come across, like what, what inspired you to read it other than me hectoring you and Jordan for years to, to pick it up and have a read? I don't know if I was if I was hectored as much as Shopper. <laughs> I think you sent him a copy, didn't you? Yeah, yes, I probably did, yeah. I think I left one with him, maybe, but yeah. <laughs> it, it gathered <laughs> dust it gathered dust for a while on his shelf. I think you've been I think you've been dying for someone to um someone to get through it so you could talk about it. <laughs> and uh, before we get to me, I wanted to just ask, is this your favorite book? Ah, good question. I mean I I was thinking about this last night for some reason, about if someone asked me what my favourite book was, and I can never sort of narrow it down to one, but it's certainly up there. Um I wouldn't say it's my favourite, um, but it's certainly uh it's certainly right there in terms of um, you know, being uh yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's probably in the top five, let's say. Okay, okay. And you've have you have you read it multiple times? Um, you probably would have done the sections. Yeah, definitely. So I have read it, but then gone back to look at certain things. Um, and another one of his really good books that I've probably been more in touch with recently is his um, biography on Menzies, which is equally weighty, but um, just such a good um, biographical book, but then also a historical piece um, that's very accessible. But yeah, so um, I have it have uh, revisited it lots of times um, over the years. Okay, <laughs> yeah, for for, um, for me, I guess I um I decided to to read it like partly because John Howard is you know, he's just the he's the dominant figure in Australian politics in the last twenty years, and um, yeah, as you said second longest serving prime minister these 11 years and um uh it's it's interesting that i was kind of thinking about um, you know after howard it's been this 
such a, a tumultuous period in, in Australian politics. And it's interesting the, the contrast with him serving for this very long period and now moving into a, um, yeah, a, a much more uh, less stable political environment in Australia. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I sort of wanted to, to think that, that was kind of what um, made me want to want to dig into it a bit more. Yeah. And partly, you know, uh, maybe there was this subconscious idea that, uh, you know, he, um, he was so successful as a... Um, as a political leader that there's, you know, there's something to it. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's a lot of that is comes back to I, my, my sort of sense is that, you know, he can appeal to a lot of, um, I guess, traditions or timeless things, but also um, appeal to a sense of renewal um, and then also sort of combine these elements where, and, uh, you know, and also I think being a great kind of um, uh, communicator as well and obviously a very clear thinker because I think there's a lot in that, you know, we sort of joke about the length of the book, but it, it's certainly not a hard book to to penetrate once you get into it because his style is so accessible. And I think there's that sort of going back to that, you know, the J.D. Salinger sort of element too. It's like you, you pick it up and you, you're expecting a very sort of difficult, um, hard time, um, but it's, it's, it's not. Um, it's quite accessible. And, you know, one of the things that I... Um, I remember touching on in in my book was this, this this chapter around principles first, methods second, and I I think I quoted Howard's um, sort of policy or philosophical template that he put on issues about you know encouraging choice, um, you know in strengthening the family, um, and then sort of favouring I guess individual or private sector um, over I guess government sector activity. Um, and then putting that kind of template on policy issues was, I guess, a principles sort of starting point. And it wasn't, you know, per a perfect fit. And obviously people of different philosophical persuasions can put other, their principles on different issues. But I just always remember thinking about, you know, like how, and I write about this, about how, you know, very complex and tricky kind of world returning, where, you know, especially in, you know, his case, where you're confronting very tricky policy issues and, a lot of areas that need significant reform um, coming back to principles is such a handy thing in a policy reform sense yeah I think that's there's a yeah a few a few things um, uh, out of responding to what you've said um, I agree on the the writing style it's it's very direct and I and this is also um, something which is it's interesting in um, looking at um, made me sort of rewatch some some Howard's features and you know it's uh, it's it's really clear uh, communication direct and um, you know explaining explaining his his rationale for for certain certain things uh, and and yet he's like he's able to combine this uh, very direct easy to understand style without it sounding like he's talking down to people. Mm. Which I think, can, or just using a whole lot of like platitudes, which is really common to political speakers and uh, and writers, that things can sound kind of trite. So that's that's also something which uh, yeah stuck out to me is um, that that communication style and is yeah, that's obviously part of the reason for his success. Um, 
So, and and also, yeah, that's I mean, it's it's a very strong theme in the book. His his conviction and um, and strong understanding of his uh, political beliefs and what he wanted to accomplish, and um, continuing to kind of connect with that. So, uh, yeah, that's um, those are those are some strong strong themes in the book for sure anything in particular will jump out to you as you you read it on imagine you would have kept um a pretty close eye on the economic issues or some of the fiscal issues um is there anything there that was interesting or surprising or worth noting yeah the um uh it i mean it's interesting i guess just the the sweep of howard's political career like we think about him being the the prime minister from uh, the the mid nineties to uh, two thousand seven. Well, I mean, he you know he's had a long political career before then, and talks actually about uh, being treasurer under Malcolm Fraser as a very young politician. And um, you know this is this is part of his story is this um, you know rapid rapid rise as a young politician to uh, you know being the treasurer, then the opposition leader, and then suffering this sort of setbacks. Um, but you know the part of that uh, early experience in as the the treasurer was really about him learning um, and changing his views on sort of what needed to be what changes needed to be made to the Australian economy. And you know he he was through that sort of political period of um, the um, the the opening up and and um, deregulation of the Australian economy and the the significant. Um, uh, period of economic reforms through the Hawke-Keating era, and then, and then in the uh, when he was prime minister, and obviously the, I think the the standout um, uh, policy reform or um, in general is the introduction of the GST, uh, which is something which Australian politicians had been uh, uh, trying to do and failing for decades. And um, you know he was his government was able to get it done, and that's a a significant um, economic economic reform achievement. So uh, that that sort of stands out to me as Howard's biggest achievement. I, I guess I I um, like to um, your perspective both to economics and and just in general. Yeah, sure. Well, those are good points. I was just going to say um, even on the yeah on the I remember. Um, you know, like you mentioned, he was he was probably Australia's youngest, if not he's up there with second youngest treasurer. I um, mean, his thirties when under the um, when he was in the Fraser cabinet, and I remember him saying this wasn't very recently; it was a few years ago now that um, you know how I guess Fraser had stayed stuck in um, the economic thinking of an earlier era um, of the seventies or the sixties or before then, whereas Howard had kind of moved on in his thinking about, I guess, macroeconomics, trade, um, tariffs, um, and the economy. And I think that that was quite of an interesting thing in itself that sort of showed Howard's capacity to, to grow um, and to sort of keep up with the, um, you know, being stuck to, I guess, maybe older principles and older policy attachments to policy issues that you would advocate for in the 60s or 70s but not being able to sort of see and i think this is this is you know he's very polite about when he said this but one of his main criticisms of fraser was that he didn't adapt or 
um, keep up with this changing economic or fiscal environment. And you can obviously see that with Howard 20 years on being able to, um, you know, not do a complete about face and, you know, flip things up completely, but it did show a very sort of strong capacity to mature with time and keep up with economic issues and what the appropriate policy responses um, to those issues were in a very globalising world, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s and, and so forth. So I think that was probably one of the things that really jumped out to me um, as well. And I think, you know, um, deregulation, um, you know, his, his first major issue I can recall was confronting uh, was waterfront reform. Um, and, you know, I think he was coming from a side of politics where um, it, it was, I guess, it wasn't going to be an issue that would have been easily dealt with, I think, on the Labor side of politics. Um, but a clear case where, and I remember, I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, the number of container, shipping containers being moved per hour and how behind the rest of the world Australia was, despite being a sort of first world country. Um, and just being able to use that as, I guess, a, a bit of a totem around the numbers about why reform was needed in this space. Um, and I think that was the sort of first huge issue that he confronted um, politically was um, waterfront reform. And um, yeah, I just remember thinking that what a way to sort of kick off and <laughs> to go into. And then, of course, there was gun control, um, which is an issue that pops up all the time. And I think that's why Howard's name sort of pops up a lot now globally, or certainly in the United States, is around, um, around gun control. And then, as you mentioned, GST. Um, and then the Iraq war, and then um, I guess, you know, like some of the other sort of big issues, but those are sort of the big things that, but, um, but again, going back to that Fraser point, you know, being able to, I guess, have sort of solid principles, but apply them to a changing economic world is certainly, I think, uh, contributed a lot to his personal philosophy and I guess political success as well. Yeah, I think I agree. There's, there's a, um, uh, there's a an, another element in this is learning from mistakes, mm, and oh, yeah. as you talked about that, um, the um, the time when he was he was treasurer. Um, another example is on um, on immigration, where he he sort of admits that some of his um, earlier earlier comments, you know, he he sort of um, um, were sort of, were wrong and, and recalibrates in in that way. And um, another another sort of mark of this is is Howard's pragmatism. That um, yes, he's like a conviction politician, but he's also he's also incredibly pragmatic. So you mentioned um, you mentioned Port Arthur. You know, this is um, you know was a was a significant challenge for him within his own party and the the coalition with the the Nationals, and yet he was you know able to to respond to the the circumstances at the time uh and another another example of how it being pragmatic i think is uh in around the gst in in actually in negotiating with the democrats and giving them the exemption of fresh food from the gst so he was he's not he's not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good mm. and uh, there's a there's a you know, a few examples of this type of um, learning and and pragmatism 
as a political leader. And I think these are, you know, um, are really are really good hallmarks of, um, uh, of of successful politicians. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a, those are good points. One of the you know, like you mentioned, not searching for philosophical purity. Um, that's sort of something that I remember seeing Howard say a few times. Um, you know, that's the sort of that that balance around pragmatism that's always needed. And you're right. I think that was one of the key. Um, elements of his leadership but then also uh, yeah spot on I can't believe I forgot to sort of mention it that learning from mistakes and I know one of the other um, things that he sort of regrets or could have handled better was his um, speech to indigenous leaders um, it would have been in the late 90s about where he sort of got a bit hot-headed and um, you know people had turned this back their backs to him while he was speaking um, and he said it, you know, like as the crowd, the noise of the crowd rose, he sort of tried to speak over them. Um, and, you know, that's that's something that he regrets and he would have handled better this time round. And I think, yeah, that's such a strong point about, you know, learning from your, your mistakes. Yeah, and I think another example which he mentions, which is um, towards the end of his, towards the end of the his term as as prime ministers around industrial relations and some some elements of that that he you know uh, later and you know reflecting realized were were mistakes in um in those sort of um changes that that were made from and you know were partly what uh, what cost him that um that election yeah that's right it ended up being a, a huge political broadside for whenever it was 2007 election yeah so of course and um and that at that time well yeah and the other sort of point to round in on too i think is just that persistence that you touched on will like oh grief you know like you read about someone who his career sort of seemed down and out and over um and you certainly you know some of the trials that he had to endure in the 80s and 90s you would certainly not think he was um going to come back and be australia's second longest serving pm yeah it's um yeah, incredible. Um, yeah, incredible sort of story of uh, yeah determination and and not uh, not give not giving up. Um, yeah, one thing I I wanted to uh, ask you about was um, uh, if about him not not quitting on top mm. and um, uh, as a as a as a political leader and how hard that is to to do yeah um i suppose this is the other point that's sort of been come out a bit since he departed that yeah it's it's um about all the discussions that he had and whose counsel he listened to the wishes of the party room and um and yeah look i sort of sense that it was probably extremely difficult for him you know he'd won how many elections i think five in a row um you know so it was kind of like um, is, you know, what you'd be running, I guess, on pretty some pretty good political capital. Um, and I think it'd be quite sort of, you know, like this was a time, of course, when, you know, of decent political stability, unlike we've, we, you know, not like we've, we've got today in Australia with the sort of revolving door of the, the leader. Um, but, yeah, I sort of sense that it's probably, you know, uh, you look at other... Um, leaders, you know, in the Australian political, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, like someone like Mike Baird, um, who who stepped down, you know, who was kind of 
former Premier of New South Wales, who was in a very sort of decent position um, and then got himself out of the game. Um, and you sort of forget about these people, but I do think that that's, you know, one of the things that um, is obviously very advisable post-fact. But, um, yeah. you know, at the time, I would have sensed that, I was, you know, like if you were sitting in the party room um, and having a chance to vote on who you'd want to take you to an election in 2007, I think, you know, I'd find it very difficult to, you know, vote for Peter Costello or someone else. But, you know, in hindsight, that's obviously what everyone sort of thinks that should have happened and been and done. Um, but they didn't do it at the time. And I think for pretty obvious and good reason that, like I mentioned, he'd won so many elections and was still a well-known figure. And um, yeah, but post-fact, it's easy to say. Yeah, it's it seems. Um, I mean, it's this is part of you know, yeah, part of perseverance and determination. Can I guess you know that can that can lead you to you know want to continue. Um, and as you said, when you've been a when you've been a successful leader, it's it's really hard to give that up. And I think this is what we see. There's there's very few politicians who actually do this. Um, mm. Yeah, just uh, by the kind of nature of. Um, uh, I think the sort of nature of people who are, are in the game, and there's you know, I could I could only think about um, someone like Angela Merkel mm. and John as being um, internationally some um, some examples of this. But you know they're the they're the exception, not the not the norm. Yeah, sure. Look, I absolutely forgot about. I was racking my brains just before trying to think who else is there. But yeah, I, I should know living in New Zealand. But yeah, John Key, yeah, <laughs> um, very very classic example and. It's kind of amazing how quickly you forget about those sorts of leaders who step out of the game, um, you know, at their own volition. Um, and I, I wonder if there's something in that, but maybe you, everyone sort of forgets about past leaders a lot these days. It's just something that's sort of done generally. But um, yeah, I mean, um, one very quick point I just wanted to loop back to on that persistence element was even just um, this that re a recent piece I wrote on Reagan's uh, time for choosing speech and looking a bit closer at him as a person, you know, I think he'd gone for the nomination um, five times or something like that. And, you know, you just, and how how razor thin, you know, he was to dropping out of the race lots of times um, and staying, you know, out of the game. And um, yeah, and obviously things turned around and sort of fortunes changed, but yeah, I think that's very admirable and whatever side, you know, and, and again, I think it's a lesson you can apply to any endeavour that you're doing about this element of persistence and being, um, you know, uh, committed to a lifelong endeavour. Um, you can have breakthroughs and, um, and I guess, do, do extremely well. But I think there's that sort of, and this comes back to the sort of correspondence where you, because I... Um, about knowing when to quit, I suppose, as well as the other side of the coin, isn't it? Because um, yeah. one of the things that when you sent me the um, that email about the Lindy effect and, you know, Nassim Taleb and what you've sort of discussed and highlighted here at, um, at the top of the show, it actually got me to think about, well, if there's the enduring, you know, when is it time to not endure with a certain enterprise? And, um, you know, I, I think that... I remember reading um, Scott Adams's book, um, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, 
and there was a really lovely quote in that about the because he was a guy that you know everyone knows him as the um the Dilbert cartoonist and um he shot to a lot of fame recently for being a um Donald Trump supporter, which is sort of a, the eye of a lot of people, but um, a very interesting character. The more you read him about, you meet, the more you read his biography, the more you see he's tried a lot of different things and failed a lot at a lot of different things as well. But he made this really good point, I'll just quote at length again about when he sort of knew when it was time to not endure. Um, and I'll just quote, so there have been times I stuck with bad ideas for far too long out of a misguided sense that persistence is a virtue. The pattern I noticed was this. Things that will someday work out well, start out well. Things that will never work, start out bad and stay that way. What you rarely see is a stillborn failure that transmogrifies into a stellar success. Small successes can grow into big ones, but failures rarely grow into successes. Will, your thoughts? Yeah, it's, um, yeah he's interesting. I've read that book too. And um, there's a lot of uh, kind of contrarian advice, which um, which makes a lot of sense. And his his idea, I guess, is that you should just um, fail at a lot of things. And if you try enough things, then something will uh, something will succeed and come through. And um, yeah, this this also strikes me as an idea with uh, in the sort of startup type world that. Um, it's like if people are you know, just just trying a whole lot of different uh, business models, and if they sort of churn through enough, then they'll uh, you know they're more likely to hit on something. And um, so I think there there's something to what he's saying in that um, you want to you want to like take the information from how your trial at something has gone, and then um, and then recalibrate. So. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess that's what I, I sort of thought about that. Um, what about yourself? Well, um, learn from failure, right? Like that's the, you know, going back to Howard, <laughs> it's a, a key sort of thing. But yeah, I guess it's that sort of interesting balance about what you do. Like I think, you know, if you'd, um, you know, would would Howard have been as successful if he had sort of heeded some of that advice, I guess. Um, but then I guess you sort of look back at it and think, well, he wasn't... Um, you know, a stillborn failure at all. He had a sort of very rapid ascendance. So it's kind of like, you know, um, yeah, it, it, there's an element of sort of feel to it, I suppose. And and I think an element of, of approaching this kind of organically, I can't recall what I was listening to the other day, but there was that sort of point about this um, Silicon Valley, you know, fail fast, fail early, you know, those principles and how... Um, there, you know, it's almost followed like a, a tick box exercise. It's like, oh, quick guys, let's go fail. We've got to go fail quickly. And it's kind of like, yeah. Um, yeah, we failed today. All right, let's, you know, like a new sort of step. And it's kind of like not supposed to be seen as a cosmetic or um, thing. It's kind of something that you confront organically. Um, and there's an element, like I say, of sort of instinctive feel required for things versus um, it being seen as a sort of a robotic kind of, utilitarian exercise i suppose if that makes sense yeah it does and i think um it depends if you if you're someone like uh you know if you're like howard and you know you've been successful he kind of has a vocation and a thing that he's he's really good at 
I guess um, the Scott Adams, the the Dilbert creator, he's he's more got a sort of range of skills and is then is then trying a few different things. But the uh, yeah, I I, um, I I remember this line, which um, I think is is some nice uh, nice. Nice way to think about like career advice is that um, uh, it's like first fire bullets, then cannonballs. <laughs> and so the idea is that you you know you um, try a bunch of things and and do this this um, some experimentation, and then you like go all in on something, and uh, and really sort of um, dive into something. Um, but I. Yeah, there's a tension there, which you're kind of saying that you want to, but you want to persist with things enough to discover if it's worthwhile you continuing, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, which is and, and and this is this is really hard to do. It's it's um, really hard to know if you um, want to sort of continue investing in something or or should be doing something different. Yeah, definitely, it's um good food for thought for the podcast. Uh, I've sort of thought a few times about persisting and or you know packing up and but it's certainly something that i enjoy and you know with our sort of format and how we've sort of switched things up a little bit is um i think one of these other bits of advice too that's kind of like um if sort of something is taking the buzz out of something or taking the passion or the sort of fire out of something then switch it up and try something a little bit different and i think that you know not quit outright but just um try switch it up um and do something yeah do something different to quote tony robbins (laughs) (laughs) yeah but um yeah yeah and your range of skills will um just moving now to a bit of various incentive you prompted me to me me to um remind um us to just very briefly maybe talk about um, david epstein's uh recent um podcast interview with russ roberts on econ talk which was just an absolute cracker of uh and maybe it's one for another discussion but um i just think that's just where he's touching on briefly um that i'll drop into the show notes that was just such a good good discussion what did you what did you think of that one yeah absolutely fantastic so just to give um give people a bit of context um epstein's book is called range and it's basically about um, it's making the case for uh, for generalists rather than specialists in um, uh, in kind of uh, elite performance and that um, there's a there's a lot of narrative about early specialization being the path to uh, long-term success but um, you know, he um, he sort of counters that a bit and um, wants to, to think more about the importance of uh, experimentation and the the benefits from um, generalizing uh, as well as specializing and that this is um, you know, this is really domain specific and um, yeah I think it's just you know this is just such an interesting topic about uh, yeah generalists versus specialists uh, yeah I, I thought it was a, a fantastic conversation and, and so much um, so much to it what about you yeah no that's yeah spot on I I really liked um, I guess it's probably quite encouraging to to read or to listen to Epstein um, being a sort of generalist myself um, and not a not too much of a specialist in any in in too many things but uh, um, yeah so I think that one of the things that um, really sort of jumps out is that is the um, 
the sort of two approaches to um, you know the the Roger Federer Tiger Woods dichotomy about you know do you start at two years old and rigorously sort of approach this sort of ten thousand twenty thousand hour principle of of constant kind of um, yeah um, commitment to a certain skill or practice um, at an early age or do you sort of feel it out a bit and um, sort of try lots of different things like you mentioned um, so you know on one side that you know the Tiger Woods thing is start early um, just fully get into it and specialize or the Roger Federer thing that yeah specialize you know try lots of different things and then you'll sort of come into your own a bit later um, yeah yeah I um yeah and it it's um it uh, it also it also made me feel a bit uh, a bit better as well because I think um, I feel like I'm a, I'm somewhat like you in that um, uh, early in you know we both started working at uh, at prime minister and cabinet uh, together and that's um, you know there you you develop a whole lot of generalist type skills in a in a particular policy area and um, that uh, yeah I've Sort of throughout my career, from you know, at uh, starting from this sort of generalist type um, uh, role, you know, moved to at the OECD a slightly more specialist, but still quite a generalist type role, and now, you know, starting a, a working on a PhD in economics, it's like I'm uh, doing a, a reverse to the way I feel like a lot of people do it in uh, in their careers is. Um, is specializing early and then branching out from that. Whereas, um, yeah, I feel like I've more sort of gone from uh, broad and I'm, and I'm narrowing, um, narrowing a bit. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's, there's gains to, um, uh, generalizing or just developing a range of skills in kind of working out what your, your interests are and what you're good at. Um, and then, yeah, and then, um, then specializing. I don't know how, how, have you thought about your own uh, your own development? Yeah, look, I sort of sense that it, it's kind of um, I think naturally, as you sort of been exposed to a lot of different things over time, you you things come out of the woodwork, and you you think, wow, that's quite interesting or fascinating, or that's an area that I haven't really sort of considered, and you narrow in on things that you would have otherwise thought that wouldn't have been too appealing, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean. And so, yeah, it's probably a natural sort of progression to, to zero in on things. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think sort of on that, the point about um, the sort of two approaches, I would sense that it, there's a bit of, um, like, I think the sort of core foundation of whatever approach that you want to take on, if you're a generalist or, you know, um, specialising in something, is just probably the time spent and required and that, solvent i think in anything is just that capac that need to work on something really um you know that hard work and over time and and to confront failure and to keep persisting but and just how tricky that is and because i think what's missed in a lot of that sort of dichotomy discussion about do you go the tiger woods approach or the roger federer approach like roger federer wasn't you know once he'd sort of decided that tennis was his thing he wasn't just sort of like eating Mars bars and, you know, drinking Cokes and, you know, having a, hit, a lazy hit around with the tennis racket um, casually. Um, there was so much that's required in... in um, and, and I think that sort of back to that 10,000-hour principle, like, I don't think 
it was it's ever really um it's not i think it was it was for um violinists i think originally but it's kind of like it's a general i think um maybe philosophical guide i'd argue to what it takes to get good at something it's not something that you mechanically follow um and i can't remember if epstein writes about this in range or in his other book about the sports gene where um you know he took a guy through or he tracked a guy through um who practiced golf literally and he logged it for ten thousand hours and you know he didn't become world a world-class golfer he of course got quite good but it's not like the sure fire recipe for um, success in a certain field but it should never be read that way or looked at that way i think it's kind of back to the failing fast fail you know like it's not a tick box thing it's there's a lot of sort of things that factors that come into certain successes in your chosen field whether you're a specialist or a generalist um and so it's not a sort of unicausal thing there's lots of elements that that come into to those things yeah i i agree and this you know there's obviously um you know, for, for really exceptional people like um, someone like Roger Federer, there's obviously, a, you know, as well as a, um, a huge amount of um, consistent practice over a long period of time, there's a, a huge amount of natural ability as well. And that um, you need, you know, to, to combine, those, combine those things. I think that um, one interesting point which I... Um, uh, I wanted to wanted to mention, which is is in Scott Adams' book, um, and he talks about the value of uh, certain general skills, which uh, can benefit anyone in any field, mm. whether you're a, whether you're a generalist or a specialist, and and things like uh, writing skills, public speaking skills, mm. time management skills, uh, and just you know developing your own character. These are these are kind of general skills that will help anyone mm. and that uh, you know if you can if you combine a, a bunch of these different general skills with um uh, you know on to the uh more you know domain or role specific skills that that it it really uh multiplies your um you know your long-term uh, contribution and success so yeah i think that's also um, an, an important point to this you know um uh dichotomy or spectrum between specializing and generalizing yeah that's a really bang on point um absolutely love it will and i i'm conscious and it might be a good point to actually uh finish up on um, at least for this episode because i'm conscious we've ran maybe a little bit long but i think we've covered a lot of ground there and what a cracker a point to finish on because i think it sort of ties back into the those sorts of core basics or core principles and ideas that yeah, I guess will help you endure or individuals endure. And I hope listeners endure. Um, and I hope everyone sort of got something out of this and um, and certainly endure with the podcast until the end of the year when we, I hope to get to, to get things back to uh, on track and we can sort of get to that 40 episodes. But Will, thanks so much for, for joining us from New York. Um, really appreciate your, your time. No worries. Thank you so much. It's been, uh, it's been great to, uh, speak as always. Brilliant. Thank you, listeners. That concludes episode 37 of the Jacobs podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time.